0: Please pray with me. Loving God, as we trod in the footsteps of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, would you help us to walk in the light that we might notice the dewdrops of mercy shining bright and at the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It is good to be back with you. For those of you who haven't come regularly, I don't normally stand up here. Usually it's when I need protection or I think I have something important to say and I'm not sure which today is. (laughs) But I am back from a once-in-a-lifetime sort of vacation, which many of you know, in which I realized this week that we traveled about 14,000 miles and 30 hours of flying time and were among penguins and guanacos, which are kind of cousins of llamas, and rheas, which are cousins of ostriches, and pumas, which thankfully we never saw. <laughs> and so I'm still getting my heart, mind, body, and soul back into this hemisphere. We went all the way around the very tip of South America, and it was an amazing journey, and I'm grateful to all of you for affording me a sort of vacation in which to experience all of that. I did take Matthew's account of the transfiguration with me on my vacation, hoping for some grand insight or new ideas about it. Particularly while I was looking at peaks of the Andes at around 10,000 feet, or going on our own hikes of just a little over 1,000 feet. I'm not sure that happened. I actually took the story in Spanish to our archaeologist guide, who specializes in discovering things at 20,000 feet. And we went over the story together, which not surprisingly for a woman who has scaled the heights of hundreds, literally hundreds of high peaks, this was her favorite passage. I'll share with you some of the same ideas she had later in the sermon. But still, this story stayed with me as if there's anything I could say about it. And when I turned to other preachers, both in writing and in discussion this week, I realized that this is a story that stands on its own. And it defies interpretation. Now, we Protestants like to explain everything and anything. And if we can't, it must not be worthwhile for the faith. That tends to be how we operate. And we 21st century rational folks have trouble processing a luminous, numinous experience like this one in how we might apply it to daily life. It's as if, as one preacher suggests, we want to take a story like this as if it's a suitcase and unpack it and decode it and decipher it and then be able to fold up the contents and put them away in a drawer so that we never have to go through that work again and just pull it out whenever we need it and say oh yes that's what this story is about my guess is if this were a story from any other sacred mountain tradition say of the aztecs or the greeks or the mapuche people of south america we might just say, oh, it's an interesting tale about a mysterious experience and leave it at that. But there is, some of us, there's something about how we want to kind of sap it or take out of it its meaning. So for those of you who need that, here is a little thumbnail sketch. At the center of this story are Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And the people who are watching are Peter, James and John. And then, of course, there are all of us watching all of them, in this case, through the lens of the Gospel of Matthew. Most of us laboring under the illusion that we need to figure something out here. But if you want to know some of those notes, Moses stands for the law, the history and tradition of the Israelites. Elijah stands for the prophets. And Jesus, of course, is the Messiah. And by this voice singling out Jesus as my son, my beloved, just as happened during his baptism, God is setting the good news of Jesus over the law and the prophets and saying very clearly, listen to him, this disembodied voice from the cloud. There are perhaps two auxiliary meanings to this story. One, about how it's better to keep your mouth shut in the presence of the holy than to blurt out things like Peter does, who wants to stay here and build some tents. And the second auxiliary meaning is how the purpose of such mountaintop experiences may simply be to strengthen us to be able to climb back down into the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death where our real work is often done. I may have been looking too hard in the high peaks of the Andes. Mount Tabor in Israel, just outside Nazareth, is a mere 1,800 feet, not even quite as tall as Mount Monadnock in New Hampshire. And yet, that is the hike they went on, probably for about 45 minutes, Peter, James, and John not knowing where it was going. For those of you who like to hike, or maybe it's been a while since you've hiked, or perhaps you've never hiked, let me give a reminder to us how it often goes. Those of us who like to prepare for anything usually have a little knapsack on in which we keep some sort of mix of trail mix or sunglasses, sunscreen, some water, maybe some layers to take off or to put on. If you're like me, you pack a small portable kite because you never know when a good wind will be up there. And you can surprise and bemuse your travel companions with that as you go along if you've never been on this particular hike you may wonder just how long is this going to take particularly if you haven't hiked in a while will we encounter any wildlife on the hikes i was just on i was accompanied by several people from across the united states one of whom was a 61-year-old retiree who has been a hard-charging businessman all his life and is now trying to figure out what to do with the rest of his life. He and I both enjoyed being at the front of the group. One woman in her 60s, who was a great hiker, said she would like to be in front for a while, to which I said, please, sure, go ahead. She tried up for about two minutes and she said, I don't want to encounter any pumas. And so she backed up to the end of the line. In fact, we did see the leftovers of Puma's dinners and breakfasts on our hikes, bones and sheepskins and skulls, reminding us that a hike is never without its risks. Sometimes the view, or oftentimes the view, is obscured, and you wonder what the view is going to be like once you get to the top. You get little glimpses along the way through the branches, through openings, each one giving you some hope of what you might encounter. And when you get to the top, if you're lucky enough to have a view, even if you go up five, six 600, 700 feet, It has the ability to change your perspective, to mess up your sense of distances, how close and how far, to give you a little trepidation if you should fall down the side of the mountain or the cliff. And the best way to enjoy such a vista is to take some time for silence, to just sit there and wonder about it to pay attention about how your perspective has been changed and if possible, how you take that back with you. And then of course, there's always the hard decision of knowing when to leave. When you've looked long enough, when you've soaked it in enough to look out over the waterways and the hillsides, when you've seen things that seemed so large to you become small, when you become more aware of your place in the scope of the universe, or at least of the planet Earth, or the region you're in, how can you take that home with you and remember it in your heart and your mind and soul? So at the risk of trying to do too much decoding of what Jesus, Peter, James, and John were doing up there with Elijah and Moses, I wonder what the transfiguration says to you and me as we sit here as Christians in the northeastern part of the United States in the year 2017, as we begin to embark on another season of Lent. The text, in fact, says that he was transfigured before him, literally in the Greek, metamorphosized in front of them. But I'm not sure that's exactly how I picture it. In some ways, I think it's as if Jesus' soul, the true nature of his soul, shone forth in such a way that overcame his physical nature. Mysterious and fantastical, to be sure. It works for me to think about Jesus this way because it works with my working metaphor of our relationship with God. You've probably heard me say this before, but I think it bears reminding and repeating. I believe that spiritually, God is like the sun, shining on us at a perfect distance, sometimes seeming so close and yet really so far away, sometimes overshadowed by clouds, sometimes on the other side of the planet, but always there, whether we realize it or not, animating life and sustenance and giving us the ability to live and to love, and if we're willing, to enjoy one another. And I believe that each of our souls have been formed like a kind of prism of glass. Some of them are intricately cut Waterford goblets, Some of them are like torqued plexiglass. Some are oddly cut, diamonds or crystals, or just glass. But each one is beautiful in its own way, and each one has the capacity to refract that great light shining in our lives. Now, I also believe that these prisms get smudged and dirty and beaten about all the time and that you and I have to take time to scrub them and clean them and Windex them so that they may let the light through. And I believe in this story, God is trying to get us to call attention to the light and how it shone through one human being on earth, giving us a glimpse of how we might let it shine in our lives. It's a pretty important lesson for the disciples at this point in their journey because Jesus knows, and at least he's already told some of them, that things are about to get a lot worse. Bad things are going to happen just a few weeks away in Jerusalem, and it's good to remember who to listen to, where to put your real attention. Is it in the craziness and the paranoia and the fear going on around us? Should we pay attention to the racket going on inside of our heads? Or is it that we keep focusing on the work of God as it comes to us in the words of the prophets, in the words of Jesus? Namely, that the most important thing for us is to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the corollaries follow from that, that we are called to love those with whom we disagree, to bless those who might torment and persecute us, to turn the other cheek when necessary, and yet all the while upholding and honoring and looking out for and helping the least among us, the poor, the widowed, the homeless, the refugee, the imprisoned, the lame, The blind, the hungry, the thirsty, the grieving, the possessed, the sick, and the afflicted. And one of the best ways that we can do this is to keep paying attention to how God's work is going on in the world, despite whatever the 24-7 news cycle may feed us incessantly. That we are asked to go a little deeper and pay attention to our souls. I wrote you this week about imagining what your spiritual devotion might be during this Lent, whether it's to give something up or take something on. I invite you to read that. We are going to focus on how we might increase silence and study and service in our own lives. But for now, I invite you to cast your imagination over what spiritual hikes you need in the next five to seven weeks and what you're going to do to make sure you get them. Is it setting aside some time for prayer and just mere silence every day away from the incessant chatter around us? Is it gonna be making time for a daily walk? Is it giving up any bad habits and things that distract us like Facebook or electronic gadgets or more than 30 minutes at a time in the endless news cycle? Just remember what a hike entails, a spiritual hike, It means allowing some time to get above the fray. It means that it takes a little work to get there and you may need to pack a bag or a kite. That it's important once you reach a viewpoint to take time to savor the view, to see what it tells you about your own place in the world, about the relative distance between here and there, between God and you, and to remember to bring some of that down the mountain with you. And like the disciples, we don't necessarily even have to tell anyone about it. But we should be willing to let it change us, to transfigure our souls, to metamorphosize us. Because that, my friends, is the kind of spiritual light that we need all the time to nurture and sustain us, to allow us to live freely into life and to love, to tune in to what is most essential, most eternal, and most sustaining. Because without it, I believe we're just nothing than a bunch of busy people running in circles. And God, I believe, wants so much more than that for us, to let the light in, wherever we can find it. Amen.